Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14 is where we're at. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you guys for all your ministry in the word and music worship. This morning, as JC said, it is so good to be together in the presence of the Lord with his people. One day here, one 10-minute segment of worship here is worth more than any amount of time in the tents of the wicked. So we praise the Lord for that. Let's pray real quick again as we look to the Lord. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this beautiful church that you have given us, Lord, as an extension of your body, Lord. We, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, like, like those men that came to Philip in the Gospel of Luke, and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would uh, unveil your Son even more clearly to us through your word this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, the, the title of today's message is simply The Persevering Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's more than just a simple title, isn't it? It's a very profound biblical truth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is a persevering grace. The grace of God perseveres. It endures. It remains steadfast. It abounds in and through all times. And were it not for such grace, guys, I know me, my failures and my my blemishes would quickly overcome me and overwhelm me. It's no secret to anybody who's been a Christian even for really a short amount of time 
that all of us suffer way too much from that chronic wayward tendency expressed by the hymn writer Robert Robinson, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We all wander in so many ways, don't we? We stray. How do we do that? Well, sometimes it's just the tyranny of the urgent. There's so many things that need to get done, that must get done in life, that, like Martha, we're pulled away from the one thing of importance, which is to sit at the Lord's feet and be transformed by the knowledge of Him. It's just too many things that need to get done. Sometimes it's not the tyranny of the urgent, but it's an intoxicating wave of success or independence. We succeed in life, in ministry, in vocation, even in parenting. And we become drunk with our own self-assurance. And we forget how needy we are of the Lord Jesus. And we are pulled away by the stupor of success. And yet at other times, we just deliberately and outright disobey God. We reject the Spirit's voice working through our conscience, working through the Word of God, and we say, no, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. I'm going to do the wrong thing. And when we do that, we crash and burn. <laughs> but whatever the cause of our wondering, I guess the most amazing thing is really that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ perseveres through it all. Amen? It always does. A lot of times when we fall, especially in a repeated or a weak character in our body that we give into, we tend to think that God is angry with us. You know, when we sin, especially repeatedly, we tend to think that God is mad at us, so we're going to keep an arm's distance until he's over it. If we had the presence of mind to peek into heaven, if we could do that, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ with arms extended out towards us, not pushing us away, but beckoning us, willing, able, ready to restore us to the place of fellowship and blessing. It's an amazing grace. John Newton, who wrote the great hymn, towards the end of his life, when he was 82, said this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. He's right. It's an amazing grace, and it never tires. It does not wear out. It does not become threadbare. It remains as vigorous and as robust as the Lord who gives it. It's an amazing grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is a persevering grace. And this morning, I want to look at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the life of one of the Lord's chief servants, precious servants, and that is the Apostle Peter, one of the inner three of the Lord. There was James and John and Peter, often named together. He was the leader of the apostles. And Peter's life is a wonderful backdrop to understand and to study and to look at the grace of the Lord Jesus, because Peter is a man that is known as much for his fleshly blunders as he is for his spiritual triumphs, right? I mean, Peter succeeded, triumphed mightily, but he also failed miserably. And I might add to that, he also failed visibly. You and I have the privilege, if we can call it that, or the benefit, 
of failing somewhat privately, you know? Before the Lord, you know, before our spouse, before our children, friends. Peter has the dubious distinction of failing for the divine record. And so his failures get plastered all over the, the world's all-time bestseller for all generations to see. But because of that, and for our benefit, he serves as a great tutor to point us to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He fails on the world stage of Scripture, and I'm just going to keep pulling stuff out of here like a magician. <laughs> All right. And I want to look at one brief episode in his life that clearly shows the grace of Christ triumphing in his life, and that is found in John chapter 21. If you haven't done so already, please turn there, if you would. John 21. And if you go back and look at the Lord's predictions of his resurrection, you'll find that the Lord told the disciples on several occasions to meet him in Galilee. Remember that? In fact, in Matthew 28, 16, the Lord appointed a specific mountain on which they were to wait for him. He told them there was a specific place, Matthew 28, 16. It was a mountain. We don't know anything else about this place. If it was a familiar spot where they had prayed together, eaten together, debriefed, we don't know, but they were under direct orders to proceed through their home region of Galilee and go to this place, this mountain, where he would meet them and give them further instructions for ministry. And it's a long way from Judea and Jerusalem where they were during the days of the resurrection. It's a long way from Judea or Jerusalem, all the way up to Galilee. It's about 80 miles as the crow flies. So we don't know exactly the starting point or the ending point, so it could be more, could be less, but about 80 miles. And I believe somewhere along the walk that took several days, obviously, I believe doubt and discouragement began to invade the minds of the disciples, especially Peter. And I think you can understand why that might be. The events of the resurrection were a whirlwind, right? They went into the Passover thinking, we're going to celebrate the Passover, and then King Jesus is going to manifest himself, and we're going to go to an inaugural. We're going to go see the king crowned officially. And in fact, Luke 19.11 tells us that as they approached Jerusalem, they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So they went to Jerusalem thinking, this is our moment, this is our day only to find that the Lord started talking more about his death. And then he started washing their feet. And they just couldn't comprehend what was going on. And after the Passover Seder on that fateful night, they proceeded to the garden, and they saw the Lord in agony. And Jesus told the disciples previous to that, look, one of you is going to betray me. They couldn't fit that through their mind. And by the way, they didn't know it was Judas, which tells you how the Lord treated him. But they were just all in a flux and wondering what was going on. The next thing they know, Jesus is arrested. The disciples are scattered. They're running for their lives. They're afraid for their lives. It was a very tumultuous time. And then, of course, Jesus is tried in a sham and a mock trial against the law of Moses, by the way. And what happens? They are all gone to the four winds. Jesus is tried, and the next morning he's crucified. 
and Jesus is dead. That's all they know. Then the resurrection happens. We know that Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter and John look in. John believes Peter doesn't, and they're all pretty shook up. And more than once, more than twice, but three times, Peter denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty rough, rough days there. And we don't know, like I said, how much or how little sleep they had, what kind of food they had, but they were in for a long walk and they began to play with discouragement. Peter, you got to also realize, had been rattled pretty, pretty hard. Jesus in Luke 22, 31 and 32 told Peter, Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat. Remember that? And the idea there is that it was granted. So I don't know what that feels like, but Peter had been personally jostled and attacked by the most intelligent, the most wicked, the most powerful creation in the Lord's created order. And he was feeling pretty, pretty rocked. Also, I think he was pretty tired of his own self-deceived chatter. Have you ever failed the Lord so much, maybe in a particular area, that you begin to lose hope? You begin to lose perspective. Your heart is broken. I think that's the mindset that Peter found himself in. And he had heard his own self-deceived chatter too many times. He was tired of his broken promises. I think he felt morally weak. Furthermore, he was not a skilled preacher. He was not a skilled teacher of the law. He was a Galilean fisherman. He was a simple, ordinary person. He was not part of the elite of the Judean crowd. And this kingdom business had basically revealed every flaw in his battered character. And then as they entered Galilee, their region of their hometowns, these feelings were likely reinforced because they mixed with their familiar surroundings. They probably rested in Bethsaida, the home of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. They ate with their families. They saw their old friends and colleagues. They handled their old nets. They smelled the distinct aroma of their fishing village. And in a melancholy moment, I think two things may have become clear to Peter as he looked out at his home base. And, and that is that, one, he was not a preacher primarily. Two, he was a fisherman. That's what he knew. And being the leader of the other guys, he probably wore his heart out on his sleeve and said, guys, I've never really believed myself in this preaching thing. But there's one thing I know, and that is I know how to fish. And I'm going back to fishing. He expressed it to the other men in verse 3. And the other guys, because he was the head penguin, kind of filed in behind him and waddled right into the water. Instead of proceeding through the region of Galilee to the rendezvous point with the Lord Jesus, they actually got stuck in their towns and diverted from the Lord's command. They went back to fishing. And not, I'm not saying for all time, but this was what they depended on for their well-being, to feed their families, and what was comfortable to them, what they could do. It was a skill that their fathers had done, that they had done all their lives. And so this was not another god, but this was mammon that they could serve. And this idea had to be extracted. So they went back to their old life, to a lifestyle, to their default. I think the text in chapter 21 supports that. Verse 7, they didn't go back for some leisurely fishing. 
Verse 7 tells us that Peter was what? Stripped for work. Furthermore, the grammar supports that idea. This is the, I'm going back to fishing. It's a present active infinitive. It's, it's a decisive action. I'm going back to that, Peter said. And the word boat has a definite article suggesting this was Simon Peter's old fishing boat. So they went back to their old life, not a sinful lifestyle per se, just not what God wanted them to be doing. So they went back to fish. And when we find ourselves doing something that we ought not to be doing, the results are fairly predictable. What happened? Verse 3, they went out and got into that boat, and that night they what? Caught nothing. It's a fancy Greek word, udin. It means nothing. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it. I can always count in a good laugh for my son. Fancy word. Can't eat nothing. If you do, you die. It doesn't sell very well either, unless you happen to be a politician or something like that. But They caught nothing. Why in the world did they catch nothing? You want to know why? Because they had no business being in that boat. The resurrected Lord told them, meet me at this place, and I've got great plans for you guys. Guys, we're going to change the world. And what's more, this is going to culminate with you guys sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a pretty sweet gig. And then we look at the disciples here, and what are they doing? They're willing basically to trade it all for fish. I like fish, but not that much. I mean... They're basically willing to throw away the promises of God for something that they love in a secure fashion. And that's why, the, by the way, in verse 15, we're not going to get there today. But um, the Lord Jesus says to Peter, he challenges him. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these things? That's the translation. More than what? Than the fish, than the nets, and the boats. Do you love me more than what gives you security? that gives you meaning to your life. I mean, for these guys, we, we just look at them and say, what silly disciples. They're willing to trade it all, the glories of his promises, for a paycheck. That, that, that's presumption, right? And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, guys, we do it all the time, right? We're willing to trade away the beauty of God's promises and what he provides for us for something that we want. We basically tell God, those are nice plans. Thank you very much. You can fill out the suggestion card, leave it in the back of the building as you exit, but I've got my own plans. Thank you. Right? We do it all the time, guys. For example, ladies and guys, you have a disagreement at home. It's very sharp. And... Uh, Maybe this happens in the next few weeks. I think Eric is going to be teaching a series on marriage, so he's going to be teaching through Ephesians 5. And wives, you're, you're really hurt by your husband's words. Something is said out of turn in a wrong way, wrong tone. And you hear the spirits beckoning you. Respect your husband. Respect your husband. And you're thinking, well, when he acts respectable, I'll, I'll respect him. And the Spirit comes back with, it's a unilateral commitment. God says, respect him, not if he's respectable, but because he's your husband. Oh. 
Well, not right now. I'm working on the icy shoulder. Maybe some other time. Thanks, though. Husbands, the Spirit is telling you, love your wife. Love your wife. And you're thinking, not right now. Right now, I don't feel like loving my wife because she's not acting very lovable. Love your wife. It's a unilateral command. Doesn't depend on how lovely she is at any given moment, but love your wife as Christ loved the church. Thanks for the suggestion, but quite frankly, Lord, you don't have to live with her. Right? We want to trade the promises for what we think is a better plan. Or uh, maybe you feel the Spirit's unction to serve in the church. There's all kinds of scripture you could go to. Serve in the church, you know, children. <laughs> Get involved with children. My wife didn't tell me to say it. You know, but you're thinking, man, but right now I'm so busy, Lord. I, I've got so much to do. I've got to take the boys to, to soccer and t-ball, ballet, cliff diving. I just don't have, you know, right now I'm in those middle income earning years. And so I've got to really put in the hours, squirrel it away so I can have a, a future. But Lord, you know, get back to me in about, oh, 20, 25 years and we'll tear it up together. I'll, I'll serve. I'll serve then. You know, or maybe you're, you're flirting with a familiar temptation. And you hear the Spirit's unction bringing back the memory of the story of Joseph. And it's, he's saying, flee. Turn around, flee. Don't flirt, flee. And in your mind you're going, yes, Lord, but I'm not flirting this time. I'm just curious. Really, Lord, please, I, I'm capable of better behavior. Please, trust me. What self-deceived and fruitless things we do, right? God gives us his plan, but we have a better idea. You know, the disciples had a better idea, a better plan, and so they went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. If the Lord is not gracious... The text would probably read something like this. And that night, they went out, got into that boat, and they were all swallowed by a giant sea bass. <laughs> and they were digested and became part of the sedimentary layers of the Sea of Galilee, and that would be the end of it. Finito. Right? But that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. By the way, today you would probably have some Huckster selling you anointed apostles are from the bottom of the Sea of Tiberias, right? Neighbor? Nobody loves you like I do. If you send me a love seed faith gift of a thousand dollars, I'll send you this little flask with little tiny pieces of Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, the whole game. It's a blessing. It'll help you get a good parking space at the mall at Christmas time. Something like that would happen. But that's not what happened. Why? Because the Lord is gracious. Verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now think about this. Just kind of allow the setting to, to settle down in your mind. These guys have slaved away all night for nothing. And as the sun begins to inch its way up the horizon, it begins to highlight the 
frustrated looks and exhausted looks on these guys' faces. And there, about 100 yards away, according to verse 8, stands a solitary figure whom they did not recognize, but who asked one very simple and very annoying question. Children, and that's not a denigrating term, that's a term of affection, little ones. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Now that may be a little bit more sarcastic, not sardonic, but sarcastic. I, I don't know. The Lord knew that they didn't have any fish, right? But he wanted them to realize how futile life was without him in their boat. That was the point. They answered him, no. It's recorded in the plural in the Greek. It's, they probably said it in unison. No. One word answer. And then we have verses 6 through really 14, which is an amazing text of Scripture. Now look at verse 6, starting with verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net. He's 100 yards away, okay? On the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Does that sound familiar? It sounds very similar to... Uh, a similar incident that happened in Luke chapter 5 at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. Jesus was preaching to the multitudes off Peter Simon's boat, which was anchored just a few yards you know, into the lake. He wanted to create a little amphitheater, a little room between he and the people so they could hear. And when the Lord was finished preaching, he told Peter, okay, Peter, now let's shove off and go fishing which didn't excite Peter too much because he had fished all night and caught nothing. Again, true story. So Peter was not too excited about this, and he told the rabbi, look, rabbi, I, I realize your intentions, you're, you're a good man, but we have fished all night and caught nothing. So, you know, this is not a good time to fish. You fish early in the morning when it's dark, and the fish come up to feed, Right? And then when the sun hits the water, it begins to warm the surface and the fish go deep and it's not a good time to catch fish. But for the sake of the rabbi, they, they went out fishing. The Lord told them, okay, drop your nets at a certain place. They did and what happened? All of a sudden those empty nets begin to glimmer, right? Then they begin to pull and jiggle. And before long, they're stretching and, and tightening and some of the strands begin to snap and tear and break and they call their friends over with another boat and they fill their boats both boats up and yet they they almost sank because of the sheer magnitude of the catch and when Peter saw just that glimmer of the glory of Jesus Christ the glory of his, his divine glory Peter was overwhelmed and he fell down at Jesus feet and he said depart from me for I am a sinful man O Lord and Jesus reached down, touched Peter, and he, and he said, "Guys, don't worry. Don't, uh, don't, don't, don't be fearful. You've been catching fish all your life, but from now on, you're going to be fishing for men." And then, chapter five, verse eleven of Luke tells us, gives us the wonderful response that says that when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. Isn't that great? They left everything and followed Jesus. Yet what are they doing here in John 21? 
They've gone back to their boats. They've gone back to their nets. They've gone back to their fish. They cast, therefore, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. But having this repetition of deja vu here, all of a sudden the lights begin to go on. And it's like, this has got to be the Lord. Who else has command of the, of the sea of nature? So verse 7, the disciple, therefore whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I didn't say he dove, by the way. It says he threw himself into the sea. That probably was a face first cannonball. But this is what I want you to see in this. This is what's amazing. The minute Peter realized that it was the Lord, what did he do? He jumped out of that boat he had no business being in, and he swam back to him, albeit he put his outer coat on to go swimming. I don't know why, (laughs) but he did. But the minute Peter realized that it was Jesus out there on land, he jumped out of that boat. He wanted to get right with him. He wanted to be restored to Jesus. And you can say a lot of stuff about Peter because he failed so visibly, as we said. But just as quickly as he understood he was out of step with Christ, he wanted to get right with Jesus. He could not live long in disobedience. And that's the true mark of a Christian, guys. It's not that we don't sin, but it's that when we do sin, we can't stand it. We can't live in it. We want to taste that sweet savor of restoration. Peter couldn't live long in disobedience, so he jumps out of the boat. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And again, let this settle here. Do you realize what's going on? The Lord is looking at them from shore about 100 yards away, And he's watching the men grunting and straining to pull in this great catch of fish, which are basically acting as anchors because they're in the nets. So they're grunting away. And just a few yards in front of them is Peter flailing away. And I don't know if his stroke was very smooth at all, but if it's anything like his dive, this is no Phelps. He was just exhausting himself, probably wishing that the Lord would remember that walking on water gig they did a while back and help him out. But that wasn't going to happen. So he's watching all this from land. The, the disciples are mightily straining to get the boat to shore. Peter's trying to get to shore without drowning. And it's pretty much a, a scene here. I find this, in a way, kind of encouraging, in the back door sort of way, because these men had been the recipients of so much blessing, so much privilege. I mean, for three years, their mentor, their teacher, has been Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. For three years. Sometimes people tell me, you don't need to go to seminary or be trained to do ministry. The disciples didn't have any training. They never went to seminary. You know, they just spent three years with God, morning, <laughs> morning night, and evening, you know, all, all day long. They have been with Jesus for three years, and they have witnessed all the messianic miracles, every one of them. I mean, not just functional disease cured or psychogenic disease cured, 
but true organic disease. They have seen people who were born with congenital defects, people who were blind from birth, all of a sudden instantly see. They saw people who had withered legs and arms who couldn't walk because of disease, because of congenital disease, all of a sudden leap up and walk away in command. They had seen people who were dead, and here's the qualifier, decaying, right? Restored to full health and life. They had seen all that. Three of these guys have seen the transfiguration. What does that mean? It means they've not only seen the incarnate Christ, the resurrected Christ, but they have seen the glorified Christ. Only three people in the history of the world have seen that. I mean, no group of human beings have been exposed to so much of God as these men. Not in this lifetime. It's pretty amazing. And all of them, by this time, have been with him, seen him, eaten with him, talked to him, worshipped with him, after the resurrection. And according to Luke 24, 34, and 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Peter has been singled out for special encouragement after the resurrection. Like I said, no group of human beings have ever been exposed to so much of God as these men. And after all that, they stray from a simple command. I mean, go out, sit on a rock, and wait for me does not qualify as one of the greatest challenges of kingdom history. This wasn't go out and get burned at the stake for me. That would come later. Patience. This was just go out and sit and wait for instructions. And they slip away. They become discouraged. And you would expect the Lord to be waiting for these guys on shore with a willow switch in hand. You know, ready to put these guys back in their place. So much privilege. Should have gone with a five beta kappa group from Judea or something, you know. But ready to put these guys in their place. You know, carotids inflamed, red face, steam venting from his nostrils. Instead, what do they find? Look at the text beginning with verse 9. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw the Lord and he was really mad and he cracked his whip in midair and he said, I've had it with you guys. Is that what it says? And so when they got out upon the land, they saw what? A charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. What is that? What meal of the day is it? It's breakfast. It's just breakfast. Listen, these guys were quite literally cold. They were starving, right? And what else? They were discouraged, right? Jesus meets them with breakfast. He meets them with a charcoal fire and a kind word. Children, come and have breakfast. Verse 10. Come and have breakfast. Children, come. Little ones, come. Come eat. He's literally meeting basic physical needs that they have. Emotional needs. And so they saw the charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. And then Jesus says, come bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Now this is kind of interesting to me because there's some discussion as to whether the Lord just created everything ex nihilo, you know, 
like a replicator, or whether he gathered the wood, started the fire, prepared the fish, cooked the fish, the bread, and, and so forth. I don't think it really matters. I think what really is interesting is that he didn't make a full breakfast. He was missing a couple of the fish. And I th just think what he's trying to do here, guys, is show his premium grace towards these, these men and how much he loves them. Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Peter went up and, and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153 fish. That's 12.75 dozen. Jesus asked for a couple of fish. Peter brings almost 13 dozen fish, big fish. Peter's the kind of guy you want to be in charge of bringing the chips to the party. And so there were so many, yet the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And they didn't want to say, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. But look at verse 13. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave them, and the fish likewise. What's he doing there? He's serving them like a waiter. And by the way, those fish that they brought, those of you who are fishermen, what do you have to do with your fish before you eat them? You have to clean them, right? That is what, like one of the nastiest jobs in the world of fishing them. There's, there's guts, there's blood, there's fluids, there's ripping, there's tearing, there's cutting, right? It's not a pretty job. And yet, this is Jesus who's doing this. Jesus, the one of whom Paul says, the risen Lord of glory, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is in every spectrum of creation. There's going to come a day when God declares his name, or maybe an archangel, we don't know. But when all creation hears the name of Jesus, every creature will go whoosh to their knees. And this is he. This is that same Jesus, the risen Lord of glory, who goes to where his wayward men are, who provides for their needs with that catch, who cleans and guts the fish, who prepares the fish, he cooks the fish, he cooks the bread, invites them to have breakfast, and then serves them like a lowly servant. Guys, if we ever think we're beyond any duty in the church we need to remember him but you know guys this shows not only is salvation a divine initiative uh, it is we love him because he first loved us but restoration every day that we need restoration that's a divine initiative from the moment we turn he comes looking for us and his desires that we would repent and return so that he can bless us with his fellowship and bless us with his grace. That's what he was showing these men. He's saying, get out of that boat and come back to me. Let's get down to business. Is the Lord calling you this morning? Is he asking you to get out of that cold and indifferent place in your life and just come to Jesus and let him meet you with his grace? Peter did, didn't he? He sure did. And the Lord used this battered and bruised disciple mightily. He still made plenty of mistakes, right? He wasn't done messing up, so to speak. 
For example, that incident in the early church in the book of Acts, which, you know, the church was very happy being in Jerusalem and staying in Judea. And uh, Jesus has had other plans. He said, I'm going to start you off in Jerusalem, but we're going to go to Judea and then Samaria and then to the remotest part of the earth, right? But they were happy to be in Judea. And so the Lord allowed his plan to be carried forth by allowing the church to be persecuted with the martyrdom of Stephen, who's the first martyr of the church. And so Acts tells us that all the church was dispersed from Jerusalem except for the apostles. And so all of a sudden you had all these little groups of these bands of Jews going out as missionaries. And most of the Jewish people spoke only to other Jews, you know, because it was a Jewish thing. But a few of them felt compelled to share the good news of Jesus with Greeks, not proselytes, not God-fears, but just ordinary, run-of-the-mill Greeks running around like Vildachaya. Thank you again, Aaron. We'll go through a Yiddish uh, word test later. but Yeah, so these guys started speaking to Greeks, and it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. And so many who heard the gospel believed. And in this one particular city in Antioch, in Syria, a burgeoning Gentile and Jewish church was growing. And there was this other Jewish fellow there, Barnabas, who was a Cyprian Jew, who was born in Cyprus, said, I, I got to go find Paul and bring him here. And he did. And they discipled people for the better part of a year. Really exciting work. And when the church in Jerusalem heard how this church was growing, they sent Peter to check it out. And Peter went up and he saw what God's grace was doing. And he rejoiced. He, he joined them. He embraced them. He ate with them. He prayed with them. He fellowshiped with them. And he was really rejoicing in what God was doing. Until a group of Judaizers came up from Jerusalem to try to convert the new Christians into a form of Judaistic law-keeping. You got to stay kosher, you got to circumcise your children, keep the Sabbath, on and on and on and it went. And when Peter saw this, instead of standing up and saying, that's anti-grace, he began to feel guilty that he was spending time with Gentiles, so he, he withdrew from the Gentiles completely. He would no longer eat with them. He would no longer fellowship with them. And all of a sudden, he had a very clear message being given to that church. And that is this. There are two classes of Christians. There are first-class Christians, that being Jewish. And there's second-class Christians, everybody else. And the only one who could keep his head above the din of theological confusion, because even Barnabas got sucked into this, but the only one who could keep his mind clear was Paul. And you know what he did? He took Peter, brought him up before the whole church, and rebuked him to his face. So much for papal infallibility. He rebuked him to his face. Peter still failed magnanimously. But it was the same Peter that ultimately chose to die rather than to deny the Lord who had bought him. When the executioners came by, they said, how many of you guys 
They would group people up together. Who here is a Christian? People raise their hands and step forward. You get crucified. Are you sure you want to do this? Or do you want to deny Jesus and live? Peter said, I identify with Jesus Christ. And he asked his executioners, according to tradition, that he be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner Jesus had died. St. Peter, what made the difference? The persevering grace of Jesus Christ, which calls out to us each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is true. This is not a tale. This is the truth of the grace that you give us through your son Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that we can come as your children and be clean and be restored each and every day. You never tire of it. You love us that much. And we pray right now, Lord, if someone needs to get out of the the boat and come be restored to Jesus, I pray that they would do it during these moments of communion time. Lord, thank you for this table and how it reminds us of the death of Jesus, his crushed body for us, his spilled blood for our sins. And thank you, Lord, that you have restored us through him. Thank you, Lord, for your word for this morning and pray that you would continue to bless your people through the table. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.